live from the Haymarket Brewery in Chicago, Illinois, this is Bug House! This is a debate show. Debate is important for the democracy of America, which is kind of sort of just doesn't exist anymore, right? But debate is important because we have to move on from things. We have to get through our differences. We need the art of the dialectic, which is reasoning, or, de or debate through reason, finding the truth through reason and intelligence. And that doesn't really exist anymore thanks to social media. There was a time when we wouldn't discuss religion or politics at the Thanksgiving dinner, right? because it caused problems. But we have that now. Nobody debates with reason. They debate with their emotion. They scream at each other on Twitter and Facebook, and I'm sure at some point it's gonna hit Instagram, yeah? But this show allows us to have reasonable debates. It harkens back to a time in around 1911 when the crazies and weirdos and the radicals and the thinkers wanted to engage in discussion and debate, and they would gather in Washington Square Park and they would get on their soapboxes and they would debate the issues of the day. Fast forward to 2018, we do that here. So this is the bug house now, okay? We've got three topics. Six writers, six very talented writers, are gonna debate three issues. So the first one we're gonna hear from tonight, the issue is sports fans or orchestra fans. Who is more obnoxious? <laughs> We've got Don Hall and Brett Dorsky debating that one. And then we've got the new American Civil War, avoidable or inevitable? Heather Bodie and David Fink will be taking that one on. And then baby boomers, harbingers of doom or harbingers of opportunity? That's Joe James and Bill Arnett are gonna be going head to head on that one, okay? The rules are, uh, the people will get up and they will debate. And instead of having a, like audience participation to vote on who's gonna be the best or like check cards on who you think is the best, uh, because democracy is dead, we've got one judge, <laughs> one decision, and that judge tonight is Mr. Eddie Harvey. Yeah! What Eddie says goes, and the winner of each debate will then get to pick an envelope. There are envelopes filled with $1 bills, and then three envelopes filled with $20 bills. So, winner gets to pick one, and we'll see where that goes. At the end of the night, however, we will bring audience participation back in. We'll bring all the debaters up here, and by audience participation, whoever wins, gets the most applause, will get a growler of their choice of Haymarket beer. 64 right. ounces. 64 ounces of delicious, forget what just happened, beer. Uh, the first one tonight is sports fans or orchestra fans, who's more obnoxious? Let's bring up Don Hall and Brett Dworsky. I don't have paper, I have a giant iPad. Because Don brought his television set. I'm an orchestra fan. And uh, you'll understand that in a minute. All right, so this is Brett's first time doing it. So Brett, you get to flip, the, we're gonna flip the coin and call it in the air. Tails. It is tails, are you going first or second? I'm gonna go first. All right. Okay, Brett Dworsky. and get the mic to my height. All right. Sports are the best. Hell, they're just about the greatest thing in the world next to sex and breathing. <laughs> Humans have been gaga for sports since the beginning of time, before we could read or write or hold a job or pay bills or elect an income poop as our president. We're all just a bunch of apes seeing who could throw their feces the furthest. <laughs> Sports are loved all around the world, from rugby in New Zealand and Fiji, to gymnastics and weightlifting in China, to soccer in just about every country there is. Sports aren't just a game, they're a way of life. And not just for the athletes, but for the fans especially. Take me. I love basketball. 
I was born in September of 93, Michael Jordan's ninth year in the NBA, three months after the Bulls won their third title in a row, capping their first of two three-peats in the 90s. For you orchestra fans, for you orchestra fans, a three-peat is, you can figure it out. I'm not sure why I fell in love with basketball, whether it was pick, picking up a ball for the first time and making my first basket, or from watching Jordan and Pippen dominate, or seeing Shaq and Kobe obliterate everyone. Whatever it was, my love for basketball today has turned into an obsession. Although my playing career didn't stem past seventh grade, because <laughs> look at me. I'm a grotesque religious follower of the NBA. No. I'm not one of those fans who goes to games and takes his shirt off and smacks his beer belly on the kiss cam. I'm not one of those fans who paints his face and screams at the camera guy in hopes of getting on ESPN's not top 10 plays of the week. Those fans are nuts, but I'm a different kind of fan. The first thing I do every night before bed and every morning before getting up is check my fantasy basketball scores. I read the box score from every game the night before, check every player on every team, looking at how many points, rebounds, assists, blocks, steals, three-pointers made, three-pointers attempted, turnovers and fouls they had in every single game played. But it's not just the counting stats that get me hard, no. It's the efficiency. One of the reasons LeBron James is the best player in the world is because he's the most efficient scorer for the amount of points he puts up. In other words, his field goal percentage is through the roof. He'll take about 15 shots every game and make at least 10 of them. It's beautiful to watch and I get goosebumps just thinking about it. You don't believe me? That's my girlfriend, Cassidy. I often get sidetracked by my ESPN app, gazing at the ama amazing performance that LeBron or Russell Westbrook or James Harden just had, then realize Cassidy has asked me which shirt looks better with her burgundy pants for about five times in a row. She can't stand my infatuation with a herd of ginormous men slamming an inflatable ball through a hole, but God, I love it. <laughs> yes, I'm obnoxious, but some NBA fans are downright insane. Are you listening, orchestra fans? Take note. I am, I am. <laughs> I'll never forget the malice at the palace on November 19th, 2004. The new NBA season was a few games underway after the, after the Detroit Pistons stunned the basketball world by defeating the Lakers in the finals five months earlier. My dad and I set up a fort in the living room to watch what was sure to be an intense battle between the Pistons and the Indiana Pacers. Detroit spanked the Pacers in the playoffs the previous year, and these teams hated each other. Dad and I weren't going to miss it. With 46 seconds left in the game, Pistons center Ben Wallace went up for a layup and was fouled by Pacers forward Ron Artest, better known today as Metal World Peace. And the two got into a scuffle. A fight broke out in the court between the players, but was quickly shut down. But then the real stuff happened. A fan sitting about 20 rows up threw his beer at Ron Artest while he was laying on the scores table. Artest bolted into the stands and charged after the fan sparking a massive brawl between players on both teams and the fans that stretched down from the seats to the floor. Mike Tyson-esque Mike Tyson left hooks were thrown from all angles, players punching fans, fans punching players, fans punching each other. The, the Associated Press called it the most infamous fight in NBA history. When all was said and done, five fans faced criminal charges and were banned from attending Pistons games for, home, for life. The fight also led the NBA to increase security between players and fans and to limit the sale of booze at games. Really? <laughs> Case in point, whoever threw that beer is worse than Steve Bartman. Do orchestra fans even know who Steve Bartman is? Yeah. <laughs> Again, sports fandom comes in all shapes, sizes, and personalities. So for the sake of this argument, let's take a look at some of the obnoxious, face-painted, beer-belly-smacking beer hooligans. Instant, or example number one. Make some noise if you've ever met a Pittsburgh Steelers fan. Yes. Yeah. That's my wife. If you haven't, you're lucky. These East Coast Philly envious shitheads walk around in their black and gold paint, boasting that Terry Bradshaw is the greatest human to walk this earth. For the sake of all of us, please put on a shirt, do some sit-ups, sit and hide those damn nipples. Nobody wants to see them. Next one, please. Who is this woman? She must have been inspired by Drew, Mary, Drew Barrymore's performance in Fever Pitch, especially that scene where she grabs Johnny Damon's ass in center field. But if you look closely at her face, she looks angry, almost like she's trying to tear a chunk of his butt off so he gets injured and leaves the game, supporting her team to win. 
Crazy? I would say so. Next one, please. I have absolutely nothing to say about this human being. Continue, please. Oh, yeah! Everyone's favorite yes! fan, the Naked Runners. Look at them. Have you ever seen someone so excited? Check his face. Exhilarating. He knows he's about to get decked by ballpark security, but he doesn't care. He loves every second of the great city of Washington at Safeco Field, where the, where the Mariners play, knowing that they're looking at his junk and getting a whiff of his farts. And I know I said I wasn't one of these fans, but next slide, please. Sometimes I just can't help it either. Nipples. My nipples. At this moment, you're probably thinking, God, this jerk-off, he's barely mentioned orchestra fans. But that's my point exactly. Who the hell even knows what an orchestra fan is? If I had to guess, he's probably a patronizing, swollen-headed fellow who won't hesitate to scorn you for confusing the violin with the viola. He'll probably look like Professor Gerald Lambeau from Goodwill Hunting. But even as ludicrous as that conceited prick was, I'll bet he kept quiet during a flute solo. So do me a favor. Ask that Detroit Pistons fan who decked Ron Artest in 04 to shut up during the game, and let me know what he says. My bottom line is, orchestra fans and sports fans both possess enough knowledge of their passion to annoy the living shit out of you at a dinner party. But when it comes to game time, orchestra fans are supposed to shut up. And that's exactly when you see sports fans for who they truly are. The pettiest, most biased humans on earth. Thank you. And now, to counter that, Don Hall. Woo! Excuse me. Do you see a sound? From the bar? Is there a sound? Does anybody else hear that sound? All right. I hate wearing dress clothes, yes. I'm a fully functioning 52-year-old man who would rather have a groin rash than wear a tie or dress shoes. Buttoning up my collar all the way fills me with dread and an unspoken rage. I also really, really dislike going to church. When I was a child, my mother was poor. I mean, like three jobs to pay the rent and feed the household, poor. My great aunt Vicky was not, and frequently we would go to church with my aunt Vicky. One day she informed my mother we needed better church clothes, or we couldn't sit with her in church. It was tacky, it was embarrassing. If we couldn't bother to dress up for the Lord, she told my mother, we probably shouldn't bother to come to church. Now, she never said it exactly that way, not that directly. It was in the slightly disapproving tone of voice when she'd asked my mom, oh, are, are they dressed for church today? It was in the quiet, scolding look at my sister and I if we were anything but completely silent and attentive. I learned all I'd ever need to know about being passive aggressive from Aunt Vicky and her church. The concept of passive aggression is not new. It is the practice of couching truly aggressive behavior and entitlement behind the veil of politeness. It is smiling as you volley a devastating insult to the receiver of your grin. It's about punching someone in such a way as to hide the punch but deliver the blow. It is reactive to existing behavior rather than proactive instruction. It's about shame rather than patience. Passive aggressive behavior is about control without being accused of being controlling. There is an argument that it is better to have bigots out in society. If I hear a politician say the N-word, I pretty much know who she or he is. The passive-aggressive approach is harder. Terms like urban, welfare state, voter fraud, and states' rights cloud things. They make it harder to see who is and who is not a bigot. Hiding in plain sight, controlling 
behind the veil of civility. Now, going to a ball game, it is obvious who is and who is not an asshole. <laughs> Sports fans are obvious. They are drunk. They are anything but passive. Actively hammered, loud, excited, face painted, yelling at the refs and umpires, laughing too loud, pissing in alleyways, running naked across the field. Sports fans are undeniably human. They are living in the moment and are not trying to control anyone else. They are celebratory and full of life. Like the fans of salsa music, they are unapologetically dancing in the aisles, soaking in the good times of a victory or a loss. They worship at the altar of the blue jeans, Jesus. <laughs> Who here has been to a professional sporting event recently? Who's been to a game? Cubs? Yeah, 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 of course, yeah, 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 okay. Who's been to a professional orchestra or opera recently. Oh, thank you for your golf clap, sir. From woo to golf clap. Now, when I say professional, I mean, it's not your kids sawing away at the viola so you can come support him, but you paid to go to the austere halls of a world-class orchestra and listen to professional musicians recreate the brilliant and daunting compositions of long-dead artists to grand effect. Fans of the orchestra, as in regular attendees of orchestra concerts, subscribers of the CSO, see orchestra hall as their church. There are rules. If you aren't dressed in your Sunday best, you are suddenly made to feel unwelcome. There are announcements that require that you unwrap your candy ahead of time, as if the sound of candy unwrapping is so invasive as to destroy the posterity of the presentation. Scowls! thrown your way to indicate your simple, quiet question about the timpani or who the fuck Mahler was, shut you down. <laughs> the very idea that as a grown-ass adult, you must hold your piss until Beethoven's 35-minute second movement is complete to get up to urinate is enforced by glares and terse reminders that this is the Lorchestra. <laughs> Over the summer, I was the house manager of Millennium Park. And with both big festivals and big orchestra concerts, I was witness to the distinct difference between the orchestra fans and everyone else. <laughs> orchestra fans are demanding in a way that isolates normal people. Orchestra fans are relentless, insistent, and completely uncompromising. No one at Wrigley Field would demand someone wipe their seat off before sitting down. No one at a Bulls game would bring a cheese knife and complain to the city of Chicago online when security told them they couldn't have knives in the park. No one at a Bears game would spend 45 minutes complaining that the guy on the back of the lawn playing frisbee with his kid in a public park is disturbing his enjoyment of Debussy. <laughs> The guy who walked to the park wearing a cowboy hat, a fur coat, and no pants during a Rachmaninoff concerto, he shattered the angrily sullen insistence on the crowd to sit quietly and behave. The concert goer who accused an usher of being racist against the disabled because he had to walk around to the cheap seats, he demonstrated an entitlement that only those who hold the piety of dead music dear. <laughs> You can't see the paint, face paint on the Beethoven fan, but it's there. And the passive-aggressive insistence on valuing their experience over yours. Sports fans are annoying like a sloppy dog who can't quite stop humping your leg. Orchestra fans are obnoxious in the way a mosquito keeps biting and flying away, biting and flying away, biting and flying away, until you lose your fucking mind. Given the choice between aggressive and passive-aggressive, I'll take the drunken loudmouth over the tense scold every single time. Thank you. All right, so, Judge Harvey. Yes, sir. What do you think? 
Who's got the better argument? Don, that orchestra fans are the most obnoxious fans, or Brett, that sports fans are more obnoxious? I am going to have to go with Don. Don Hall's the winner. There you go. Our next debate is, it's heavy, man. We're talking about the American Civil War, the new American Civil War. Civil War 2.0. Like it's, it's coming, right? Or isn't it? That's what we're gonna find out. David Fink and Heather Bodie are gonna let us know. So if we could have them to the stage, please. So David, you wanna go first or second? I'll go second. All right. Heather Bodie, and you're debating which one again? That it's it's avoidable. It's avoidable. Simple meal caused an uproar. White men are filled with 
fear, they're not superior. Fragile masculinity can't lead to war. Oh no, I'm wrong, maybe I can though. With Trump around, he's such a fool. We can't lose hope now. They want us to give up the fight. We can't back down. Our rights are crucial. We must stand up and go participate. We can't just leave our future up to fate. Last time this country turned against each other, only white men had rights to vote. Now with her and them and me, no matter your identity, you can vote just like the white man could go vote. You should like the bumper sticker says you should make The American Civil War is coming, y'all. Show your t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> has nothing to do with my, uh, my position here. But, um, okay, I I'm not gonna sing. This is not, this is not musical material. Um, split in this country, it's inevitable. Democrats versus Republicans, urban versus rural, educated versus not so educated. These divisions, they're just part of nature. It's just, just the way it is. I don't think I need to do anything to convince you besides provide some examples through history that this shit has been going on forever. It's gonna keep going on. Look at Cain and Abel, biblical brothers. There's pretty much nobody else on the planet to hang with. They had an entire earth to stake out private territory, and it seems totally easy for them to coexist, yet one of them killed the other. Some traditional interpretations consider Cain to be the originator of evil, violence, or greed from, from the beginning of time. According to Genesis, Cain was the first human born and Abel was the first to die. Look at that shit. I don't even have to say anything else about human nature. This alone should win my case but I have some more time, so I will give some more examples. Uh, Montague's and the Capulets. Capulet-Montague feud is responsible for the deaths of Romeo and Juliet because it impeded their love for each other. They chose death over being forced apart. Without the feud, they would likely have no barrier to being together. This favorite rivalry inspired a play, a symphony, a ballet, movies, and all sorts of other stuff. It's so popular in the arts because we can all relate to it. We all get that. These two families just fucking hated each other, and the kids had to die. <laughs> Fucked it up for everyone. <laughs> Betty Davis and Joan Crawford. Again, two of the top stars in Hollywood, rich, powerful, could easily coexist, both gay icons. <laughs> both have Oscars, they're the biggest stars in their day, they had epic lives. Yet their hatred for each other is legendary. It's so legendary that Ryan Murphy made an entire series about it. It's human nature. Alexis and Crystal. <laughs> for those of you like Brett's age, I will say that um, they're uh, in a popular series called Dynasty. So. Um, Alexis resents Crystal's role as Blake's wife and mistress of the character in the household and tries to undermine her at every opportunity while Crystal makes increasingly bold efforts to keep Alexis from interfering in the lives of their mutual loved ones. The pair have numerous verbal spats and sometimes at least the physical altercations. Crystal and Alexis famously brawl for the first time in Alexis's studio and later in a lily pond, one of my favorites. They also hurl mud at each other in a beauty salon and slide down a ravine together into a puddle of mud before having their final showdown in a fashionable studio in the 1991 miniseries, Dynasty, The Reunion. <laughs> now, if two beautiful, insanely rich, powerful women who could have virtually anything at all can't coexist, who can? More recently, Cardi B and Nicki Minaj. <laughs> really? 
two women rappers who should be supporting each other in an industry that has few stars who are women, but they fight. It's just our way. What the fuck? <laughs> okay, let's get more personal. Uh, my father had a half-brother. As adults, they never spoke. Who doesn't have relatives who don't speak to each other or who just don't like each other? My grandfather had a brother that he didn't speak to. My mother didn't speak to a first cousin. Think of your family. See? It's nature. Can't fight it. Bigger pictures, Union and Confederacy, Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland, Turkey and Greece, India and Pakistan, Jews and Arabs, Cubs fans and White Sox fans, millennials and baby boomers. List is endless. Brother fighting brother. And it's totally inevitable that this country would be split. We can't help it. We're brothers who hate our brother. That's the way of the world. Something is really wrong with us. I mean that on a personal level, a state level, a federal level, an international level, a global level. If we found life on other planets, it would be a universal level, an intergalactic level. The potential of our hate and anger is boundless and endless. Like Sisyphus spends an eternity pushing a rock up a hill, we are destined to spend eternity fighting and never winning, and always divided, and full of anger and rage and hate. And most of it will be directed at those most like ourselves. It's our nature. Why are we doing this? You might say that we're doing this to resolve problems. Bullshit. We just like to fight. If we really want to solve problems, we would focus on problems and not just exhibit hate. For example, people burning their Nikes to support veterans, they could be sending those perfectly good Nikes to the veterans. <laughs> but instead they burn them. How does that help? I ask you. Healthcare, do you call it Obamacare or Trump care? It's all about the fight, not the issue. Even our judicial system, it should be nonpartisan. It's totally partisan. When it comes to who gets nominated and approved for the Supreme Court, we're all about the fight, not about choosing the smartest, best educated, best decision makers. It's not even part of the conversation. Rather than work on finding common ground, we steep further into our own beliefs. We watch news channels that reaffirm our beliefs, go to websites that reinforce our beliefs. Our community is comprised of people who believe what we believe. We are destined to fight. And anyone who disagrees with me, I'll meet you in the alley after the show. Yeah. And yeah, I fucking hate you too. Yeah. All right. David Fink, the Civil War is coming, and Heather Bodie is saying, no, it's totally avoidable. Judge Eddie, Your Honor. It's coming? Oh. David Fink? Wow. Whoa. David Fink's the winner. There you go. All right. That's true. Well, singing and a costume. For the podcast listener, Bodhi's wearing, what is this, like an official? Tell us about what you're wearing. Rory Zagger wore a costume. Well, Rory Zagger wore a costume, but he didn't look nearly as like put together and, you know. I'm wearing a dirndl. And, and, and what is a, a dirndl, for those who don't know? A dirndl is traditional German wear worn during the time of the festival, Oktoberfest. We vote for you, And if there was ever a country that knew how to avoid civil war by creating war with other countries, it was Germany, so there you go. There's a lot of points, but the main point that Don and I really focus on is we want to bring people together. We understand that writing can divide people in, by differences, differences of opinion, but those differences of opinion can encourage discussion, and that's why we have Bug House, and that's why we have Literate Aid. Uh, and we do a lot of things on Literate Aid to encourage that discussion and to bring people together. Uh, we have this event here, we have the website with our stories and our contributors. Um, we have the Literate Aid podcast, uh, which drops every Sunday that you should all subscribe to, please. Um, if we don't get more subscribers, my wife will stop letting me go out and record it. Uh, I need to show value to the marriage. Uh, we get beer. Yeah. We get beer and you and I get a fuck around for a couple of hours. I know, like this is all, it's the only guy time I have because my son, tiny dick, like not that much fun to hang out with. I'm kidding, he's a blast, but still tiny dick. Uh, big ideas, tiny penis. Um, 
I need, what I'm saying is I need to hang out with Don. So please subscribe to the APS. All right, anyway, point is, uh, next week, uh, Monday, November 12th, we have Books and Booze, which is an event uh, that is showcasing five uh, literary contributors. Six. Six literary contributors that have all written books. So uh, come back next week. Starts at 7 o'clock. $20 ticket. Um, it's going to be a really great show. We've paired all of the books have been, have been paired with a drink. So with your 20 bucks, you get uh, six flights, or you know, a flight of six drinks, and a chance to buy each of those books for 50% off, which I'm not totally for, but you know, it's cool. We want you to have the books. So um, please come out to that show. Uh, and yeah, we'll get on with our next, our next debate. Our third and final bout tonight. This one is huge. It's big. Baby boomers. My father and my mother are baby boomers, and I blame my dad for a lot of things. Because baby boomers have been running things for a long time, right? So are baby boomers harbingers of doom? Or have they done good things for this country and the world, and are they harbingers of opportunity? We have Bill Arnett and Joe James debating those two Um, yes, that's right. Both of these guys are contributors to the ape. So uh, if you like what they have to say, you should read more of it. Um, all right. Um, let's see. Uh, you, sir, pick a number between 1 and 30. 14. Well, don't tell me, sir. So I shouldn't have that. 14. Let's try it again. 14. 14. See, here's, here's the honest truth. My brother, my, my baby, I know, I should <laughs> my, my baby brother's a magician. He's good at asking these kind of questions. Like, pick a car, but don't tell me what it is. I'm not a magician. Yeah. Um, let's try it again. Hey, sir. Without telling me, pick a number between 1 and 45. Don't tell me. It's in your head. Cool. Joe, pick a number between 1 and 45. 27. Bill? Uh, $1. That works. Who's closer? 16. That would be... 27? 27? No, over there. Who? I don't know, math. 27's... All right, so Joe... Yeah, I'm not good at math either. I'm basically... My other brother's a financial advisor. I'm the shit brother. I'm the Danny DeVito of my brothers. That's... Yeah. All right, so Joe, do you want to go first or second? Uh, you know, I, I think I'm going to go first. Fair enough. All right, there you go. Joe James, the baby boomers are the harbingers of doom. First off... Baby boomers are not the harbingers of doom. <laughs> but they were. Baby boomers came into their own in the 1980s, also known as the me generation. They greeted the Reagan era with two tattoos on their bottoms. On the left, it said, if it ain't broke, make it better. On the right, I see things in three dimensions, length, width, and how much money I can make. The right tattoo made the whole rear section lopsided, but the boomers fixed that in the 90s with butt implants. <laughs> On their penises, figurative and otherwise, they inked perception is reality because all that matters is image. The 80s were fueled by cocaine, stealing from people through savings and loans, and bad hair. I was around in the 80s. I could not afford cocaine. I lost all my $35 in the savings and loan crash. And I had a rat tail that I have since made my peace with. A baby boomer is someone born between 1946 and 1964. Donald Trump was born in 1946, presumably in this country, <laughs> and we all found out about him in the 1980s when he was the poster boy for extravagance. He has not changed. He still sleeps with models and porn stars and creates his own reality through lying. He is the perception as reality king. It is written on his mushroom cap. <laughs> in tiny font. <laughs> Every old white dude in Congress is a baby boomer. 
More than half the senators up for re-election tomorrow are over the age of 65. 30 of those are 70 or older, and there are many senators in their mid to late 80s, they're the ones who begat the boomers. <laughs> These people don't care about the kind of future they're leaving you and the children of the world. They care about having so much money that they can be kept alive indefinitely, pay people to chew artisan multigrain bread with grass-fed organic beef and spit it into their mouths. Their IVs filled with Chardonnay from their own vineyard. They care about their own people. They care about the corporations who give them money, corporations they have legally termed people. They care about their bank accounts and tax shelters. God is a marketing tool for leveraging indignation. Baby boomers are greedy fucks. <laughs> the people leading this country now are all baby boomers. Baby boomers grew up learning that the enemy is other people and used it in the 80s. The communists, the socialists, the homosexuals, the poor, which was code for black people, except for the good ones like Bill Cosby and O.J. Simpson. <laughs> While baby boomers blossomed in the 80s, so did homeless population. Reagan took funding away from mental health and put it towards defense, forcing patients to live in the streets. Baby boomers believe homeless people wouldn't be homeless if they just pulled themselves up by the bootstraps. Homeless people ask, what are bootstraps? <laughs> baby boomers want to take away Medicare and Social Security, not because they think they are bad ideas, because they need that money to keep them from having to spend their own on frivolous things, like taxes. 70% of America's disposable income is held by those over 60. Most marketing is geared towards young people and soon advertisers are gonna wise up. They will make changes as horrifying as the future we are careening toward. They will make the straightforward commercials for the elderly, like for Depends, will feature sexy models in adult diapers. Denture cream will be marketed as a dual-purpose securer of false teeth and a stiffener for elderly boners. <laughs> By the way, if you affix your false teeth to your boner, you can give yourself a blowjob. <laughs> Early bird specials will be specials. Walkers, wheelchairs, and scooters are already being modified to look hipper, often in cherry red colors, featuring cup holders, phone chargers, and Alexa. Soon there'll be self-driving Tesla scooters with sidecars and cheese of the month plates. Retirement homes will become swanky. Did baby boomers give us anything good? Sure they did. They gave us frozen yogurt. Then they ruined it by loading it with corn syrup and gummy worms. They gave us granola bars, and then they ruined them by turning them into candy bars. They gave us Barack Obama, and now look how, what the hell's happening there? They gave us rice cake twos, but come on, those sucked ass from the beginning. That's... <laughs> Baby boomers were the first generation to grow up on television, and now they have ruined that with revivals, remakes, and turning celebrities into politicians. The boomers of today cling to their money and power like parasites at the teat of Lady Liberty. They deny climate change, deregulate any bank or EPA policy that stands between them and more money, as witnessed by the old baby boomers' intense mother hen protection of Brett Kavanaugh, there is no me too for them, they're just me first. They don't care about you. Is there anything we can do? Yes, we cannot buy their bullshit. We can care, we can care about people. We can care about each other. We can vote. In the 1980s, baby boomers were harbingers of doom. In the new millennium, they are the doom. Thank you. And here's Bill Arnett. Baby boomers are the harbingers of opportunity. Bill Arnett. All right. <clears throat> Hello, everyone. Hello. It's easy to point fingers at the people in charge and throw all the problems at their feet. I think us Gen Xers will figure that one out in about 20 years. <laughs> uh, those are on comes around. Anyway, 
Before we talk about 20 years from now, I'd like to talk about 1948. Uh, if we could all take a little imagination journey with me to the year 1948. <clears throat> the year is 1948. <laughs> you, have, <clears throat> you have just returned home from the hospital with your wife and newborn child. Uh, you are a man, FYI. <laughs> it's 1948, you know what I'm saying? <clears throat> wink, wink, this will come back, don't worry. <clears throat> you arrive home and see your friends and family have thrown a party for you. Uncle Pete, weird Uncle Pete, is there and gives you a present, a phonograph record. <clears throat> Uncle Pete, weird Uncle Pete, claims that while he was part of the Japanese Home Island Occupation Force on Honshu, he found an underground secret weapons laboratory. In this laboratory, he found a time machine. The record album he gave you, he claims, is from 1988, 40 years in the future. Well, that's interesting. Uh, the album is from a band called Jane's Addiction. <laughs> the album cover features two naked ladies sitting on a bench with their hair on fire. Um, you've only seen your wife naked. That Betty Grable pinup you had in your Quonset hut, and that one time you peeked into a Manila whorehouse and saw what you think was a naked lady. You've never seen two naked ladies together, much less with their hair on fire. The album is titled Nothing's Shocking. That title's ironic, right, Uncle Pete? No, it isn't, he replies. Well, you put it down. You walk over to your newborn child. You caress them in your arms. You take them to the spare bedroom. You kiss them on the forehead and you whisper in their ear, I'm going to have to kill you now. <laughs> the end. Well, we could make a list of accomplishments and missteps of the baby boomers. Do the math and decide the net good or evil, but that would miss the big picture. The theme that runs through the entire baby boomer generation. What was the world that they inherited and what was the world that they are passing on? Even the regrettable negative outcomes are tied thematically to the positive results. To sum up that era, I have chosen one word, action. So, let's start with that generation that came before them, the greatest generation. These are people that came of age between the Great Depression and the Second World War. They grew up with scarcity. Wherever they looked, things were bad. They were falling apart, literally bombed into nothing. Admirable, admirably, they figured things out and held the world together. The boomers, however, grew up with abundance. They are literally the children of victory. As the GIs returned home to start their lives, the US was alone as the world's dominant superpower. Their peace, <clears throat> there will be peace and liberty and prosperity. That is what the message these children received. It would be easy to lay back and enjoy the fruits of that victory, but the boomers didn't do that. They rebelled. Not with angry Facebook posts or snarky tweets, but with action. Action that this country has never seen before. From the civil rights movement, Vietnam protests, the environmental movement of the 70s, the anti-nuclear movement of the 80s, women's rights, the sexual revolution, and the beginnings of today's robust LBGTQ, LBGTQ movement. Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, all of SNL, at least the old one, the good one, <laughs> were all boomers. These constituted the most profound change to the social landscape of this country ever. The baby boomers changed our definition of our country, the definition of patriotism, what it means to be a man or a woman, what it means to be African-American, what it means to be homosexual. That is different now than it was in 1948. And today, nothing is shocking. Is there work left to do? Of course. More action is required. And perhaps that's the lesson for us woke millennials and the been there, done that Gen Xers. The greatest generation endured, the baby boomers challenged. The greatest generation was given a world in turmoil and they held it together. The boomers were the heirs of the victorious kingdom and they said, this is not enough. Thank you.
All right. Your Honor. You look like you're in deep thought. What do you think? <laughs> I'm hoping this film is baby. What do you think? Is it Bill Arnett that harbors of opportunity? Or is it Joe James that baby boomers have fucked us hard? Baby boomers have fucked us hard. Yeah. This has fucked us hard, Joe James. All right, so we can have all of our debaters up on stage. Judge Eddie's gonna take a break, and we're gonna let the audience, all the rest of you, decide on who the best, who made the best case tonight, okay? So I'll go behind everybody, you've seen this, hand over their head and you applaud and the loudest wins, okay? Ready, here we go.